Well, good morning. Oh, let's try one more time. Good morning. Good morning. It is great to see you this morning. And if we don't know each other, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Mount Hope in Belmont. And I have the privilege of opening up God's word with you this morning. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that what we've been doing is we've been walking through this Advent series and we've been taking what traditionally are the topics and the words associated with the different Advent candles. And we've been talking through those a little bit. So we started with peace. And then last week, Justin did a great job preaching about joy. And then today we are talking about the word love. And as I was thinking about love and coming into this service this morning, I thought to myself, I bet when it comes to love, there's something that I think most all of us in our culture can agree on. And it's harder and harder to find things that everyone in our world can agree on. Uh, Harder to find things that we could all say are true. And yet I think there is this idea around love that is true. And that anyone in our culture, I believe, would say that love is a good thing. It is a good thing that we need more of it. That to show love and receive love is good. I think with all the different thoughts and opinions on things in our world, that's probably something, a statement that many of us, the majority of us would agree on. The challenge, though, becomes, comes when we try to define love. We agree that love is a good thing that we should have more of it, that we should give more of it, receive more of it, but becomes really challenging when we start to define love. Because love in the English language is a very ambiguous word. It can mean different things. For example, I love my wife. Here she is in the front row, right? I love my children that were just a part of the group that was up here singing. They did a phenomenal job. But I love pizza and I love football. And I love all sorts of things. And hopefully I mean something different when I say all of those things. But that word love, uh, it can be ambiguous. Some of you, and I know this because you texted me or emailed me this week, you're sitting here right now and inside of yourselves, there is a war of loves happening because you love God. And so you're here. And you love your family and your children and they're performing today. And so you're here. But... You also love the World Cup. And right now, the World Cup final is happening. And some of you, I got messages this week. Did you purposely make my kids sing during the World Cup final so that I would have to be in church on Sunday? And I said, no, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, we didn't sit down with our children's staff and say, how can we make people totally miserable? Uh, So there's this war of loves happening right now. And you're wondering, like, what is, has has Messi done anything? Uh, Is France doing anything? And, and, uh, And some of you right now, you're pretending to look at that Pew Bible, but there's a phone, like, in the pages of the Pew Bible. So just so you can see uh, what's happening right now. Uh, And by the way, we are going to throw that on in the fellowship hall after service. So you stick around here for that too. But this is a war of loves. But hopefully we mean something different. When we talk about loving God, loving our families, loving the World Cup, there's something different. But it's an ambiguous term, isn't it? And how we define love is, is important. Our definitions of love determine how we show love and how we receive love. 
in the passage that we read this morning and we're going to look at together, we see this word love many times. Love in relationship to who God is too. And so how we then define love, not just determines how we show love to each other, it also determines how we understand God's love for us and our love for God. I think most people in our culture, there's this growing trend around how to define love or a growing movement around our definition of love. And it's some form of this. And I, I had pulled all sorts of quotes together to, to prove this to be true. But I, but I, I think I'm just going to say, paraphrase all of it because my guess is when I say it, we'll, we'll agree that, yeah, this is how our culture is moving. That love is the idea that I, I love everything about you just the way that you are. And I love you so much that I would never ask you to change anything. That seems to be a, a growing definition of love, that, that I understand you, I accept you, and I support you, and I would never, because of my great love for you, expect that you would change anything about who you currently are. And I think that definition of love is something that continues to grow in our culture. And so when we look at what John is saying here, John, one of Jesus' disciples in this text about who God is and how God loves, I think the question is, is John offering us a very similar definition of love? Or is it different? And it, this is really important. Because as we're going to see in just this short passage, how we define love and how we understand it will determine uh, if we how we show love to God and receive love from God, but then also how we show it to, to each other. So the letter of 1 John, this is a letter that was written out to early Christians. This letter is also written by the same man who wrote the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, uh, in, John is referred to as the beloved disciple of Jesus. That he was, he was uh, loved above the other disciples. A very special relationship with Jesus. So, and John, many years before he wrote this letter, wrote one of the most familiar verses. In fact, if you're here this morning, you say, well, I'm not fully familiar with the Bible. I don't know much about the Bible. My guess is, is that you are somewhat familiar with this verse. Because John, years before he wrote this, wrote one of the most familiar verses in the Bible about love, and it's John 3.16. And it goes like this. For God so, and say the word with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Greek word that John chooses to use here is, is important. Because in Greek, and I'm not going to get into it uh, a lot, and I'm, I'm putting myself in great risk and peril today because I'm going to refer to Greek and I'm going to probably reveal my own failings when it comes to my Greek studies in seminary. And we have sitting in the room here, uh, seminary professors. I'm not going to point anyone out. We have seminary professors. We have other people currently in seminary studying this day in and day out. I, it's been 20 years since I was in that place, all right? So I'm going to do my best this morning. But there are multiple words in Greek for love. And John chooses to use this word agape, or for loved, agape sin, here in the past tense. 
that God so loves the world, is loving the world, that he gave his only son. And that word agape is important because as we're going to see in a minute, when John talks about love here in this letter years later, it's the same word over and over and over again. So we have to figure out what that word means if we're going to define, if we're going to understand the definition of love that John gives us. And as we get into these verses in 1 John chapter 4, the verse 7 through 12, we start to, to see something. And I want to I go back through these um, quickly. And do we, have the, do we have the version of these that, that have the, the Greek words in them, Rebecca? Do you have the version of those verses? Uh, th there we go. And John says this. He says that when you understand how God loves you, you start to see what love is. If you really want to define love, you need to understand how, love, how God loves you. And if we put the word agape in for the word love in these, or beloved in these verses, this is what it looks like. Agape toy. The ones who are loved, beloved. Let us agape men, one another, for agape, love is from God. And whoever agape own, Oh boy, you went too fast for me. Whoever agapon has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not agapon does not know God. Because, and listen to this verse, because God is love. God is agape. Let's stay there for one moment. John says, you want to understand what I meant all those years ago when I said that God so loved the world you can understand what I meant by that by looking at the way that God loves you because God is love. One of the most important books I feel like I've read over the last couple of years is a book called Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. And in that book, she makes the point, she says, there isn't a single attribute of God that does not become an action of God. And I love that point. There isn't a single attribute of God that does not become an action of God. So if God is just, he also acts justly. And if God is righteous, he also acts with righteousness. So it's not that God just is these things. He also is acting. Every action that he has puts forth these things. And so when John says that God is love, it means that God in his actions will show us exactly what love looks like. And that's exactly what John says here in these verses. You want to know what love looks like? You want to know how you should define love? You look at how God loved you and you'll know exactly what love is. This is the agape. This is how the agape of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is agape, love, not that we have agape somen God, not that we have loved God, but that he agape sent us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. By the way, if you see Xavier Caraballo later today, you need to you pat him on the back and tell him great job because I, th I felt so bad as he started. I, I'm like, I can't believe we threw propitiation at poor Xavier Carballo and he did an awesome job with it. So if you see him after service, you tell him he did a great job, right? We'll tell him. Uh, 
because that's not a word that you use too much, and we'll, we'll get to that word in just a second. But John says to us, okay, God is love, and here's how he showed you what love looks like. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. And John, I think, says two things about God's love for you and for me that are really important. The first part is this, that God loves you just as you are. And this is where God loves af- God's love affirms how our, car- our culture feels about love. That God loves you just how you are. I don't care where you are or where you've come from. I don't care if, if you come to church every single Sunday or this is the first time you've ever been in church. I don't care if you grew up in church and then you went, you did your own thing and now you're back in this room and you feel super guilty. I don't care whether you, you were out in the world and people did things to you that have been hurtful and traumatic and shameful and make you feel guilty and hurt and broken. No matter where you are and where you come from, God loves you just as you are. And John wants us to know that God didn't wait until we had our act together and we were all fixed up and everything was perfect and we had figured out our lives. But that God proactively, out of love for you and me, sent his son to be the savior of the world. The Apostle Paul uses the same word for love, agape, in Romans 8, chapter 8, or Romans 5, chapter, eight, or chapter 5, verse 8. And he says it this way. He says, of course it's escaping me, even though it's a verse that I know well. He says this. He says that God demonstrates his agape, his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning that God loves you just the way that you are. He didn't wait until everything was perfect and everything was cleaned up and everything was fixed to show you love. He did it right where I was a sinner who was going my own way, separated from God. God loved me. But John says something else here. And it's not a a, a statement that that goes, God loves you just as you are. I don't think it's 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 a but statement. I don't think it's a qualifier statement. I think John says something that is true at the exact same time. I think it's an and statement. Not God loves you just as you are, but, you know, there's a qualifier. John says it this way, that God loves you just as you are, and he loves you so much that he doesn't want to let you stay where you are. And this is where the love of God, I think, splits from the love that our world says that we should be showing. That God says, I see you and I know everything about you and I accept everything about you and I understand everything about you and I love you just as you are and I love you so much that I'm not going to let you stay in that place. But I am going to offer you the opportunity for relationship with me, not just here and now, but for all eternity. That you might become the person that I created you to be. I was listening to a preacher this morning as I was on my way to church. 
And he was talking about something different, but he said, somebody gave me a motivational calendar recently. And I pulled off the page and the, and the, the calendar for the day said, I am in control of my own destiny. And the preacher said, I looked at that and then I looked at myself and I thought, I know myself really well. And if I'm in control of my own destiny, I'm in huge trouble. And I am so thankful that I am not in control of my own destiny. I am so thankful that there is a God who offers me relationship with him and that I can enter into that relationship and that God then controls my ultimate destiny. And that's exactly what, Paul, what John is saying here when John says that, that Jesus has become the propitiation of our sins, for our sins. Now, I'm going to guess that you got through this entire week without using the word propitiation. <laughs> that that's not a word that, that enters into your vocabulary often. But here's what that, that word means. Propitiation is a payment that satisfies the wrath of an offended party. A payment that satisfi satisfies the wrath of an offended party. This is how our, our legal system works. When one person is offended and they, in some way and they sue another person, they're trying to figure out, all right, what is the payment that could be made that would satisfy the hurt and the pain and the, and the, the anger of, of the person that was offended? Is there a payment that we can come up with? And that is the propitiation, the payment that satisfies that. You ever been at a restaurant and you order your food and it takes too long or, or the food comes out and it's completely wrong and you end up talking to the manager and you're, you're offended in some way. Not severely, hopefully, but you're offended in some way, right? So you end up talking to the manager. I, re I remember, do you remember there's this uh, chain in the Boston area, Bertucci's, and I don't think they do it anymore. But do you remember they always used to uh, put one black olive in the middle of your pizza when it was done? I don't think they do that anymore. In the group I normally hang out with, uh, family and extended family, there's one person that cannot stand black olives. And so whenever we were at Bertucci's, which wasn't often, but the times we were at Bertucci's, we would make sure to say to the server, you can bring out, bring out our pizza, whatever we ordered. Please just make sure they don't put that black olive in the middle of the pizza because there's someone in our party that feels like that taints the entire pizza and the entire pizza becomes inedible. So... One time we're at Bertucci's and, um, and I can't remember if I was actually there or I've just heard this story so many times told throughout the family that it feels like I was there. But the server brought out the pizza and sure enough, there in the middle of the pizza was a black olive. <laughs> so the whole pie was tainted. And somebody said to the server, um, we, we asked for no black olive. And the server said, oh, yeah, picked up the black olive with their fingers, <laughs> flicked it away and said, there you go. So you know how when you're at restaurants and you get offended by something that happens, the manager comes over and the manager does something to try to, to fix the offense. So free food, free appetizers, whatever it ends up being, like what is the payment that will satisfy your, your, uh, how upset you are? That's what propitiation looks like. And we've been on the other side 
right? Where you're at a nice steakhouse and you order your steak medium rare and it comes out and you cut into it and it's well done. And you call the manager over and you say, listen, I, I don't usually do this, but this is a really expensive steak. This is a special night. I ordered medium rare. It looks like it's well done. And the manager looks at you and says, no, that's medium rare. You just don't understand what medium rare is. That really takes it up a notch. What satisfies you is they say, I'm very sorry. We'll get you another one. That's propitiation. When it comes to our lives and sin, God is the offended party. And he has every right to be offended. He created the world exactly how it's supposed to be. He created you and me exactly how we're supposed to be. And we've gone off and done our own thing. We've sinned. He said, could do this and don't do that. And we said, we'll do it ourselves. Forget you. We'd like all the love that you offer and we'd like all the good things that you bring, but we'll just do what we want to do. If God said, I love you enough that I am okay with you staying the way you are, we would face an eternity apart from him. No relationship with him. Truly in control of our own destiny, which is a truly scary thing. But God said, I love you so much. I don't want that to happen. That even in, in the midst of your sin and the way that you are, I love you enough that I'm going to send my son and this is going to be costly for me because my son is going to die on the cross to satisfy the anger that I rightly feel around sin. And you say, well, how is it possible that at the same time God could both have wrath towards me and love towards me? And I think St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the fourth century, says it perfectly in his in his in his comment commentary on the gospel of John, he says this, he says, God has the ability to hate inside of us what we have made and to love what he has made. I love that line because that's what God does. All that stuff that we did, God dislikes that so greatly and so offended by it that he sends his son to pay the price for that. But yet he still sees inside of you his image and what he has created. And in that, he is overwhelmed and overcome with love for you. You know, we say that love is just accepting things the way that they are. But at the same time, if there was a toddler, a child, who only liked milkshakes and refused to eat anything else, and a parent said, I love my child so much that I accept that they only like to eat milkshakes. And so I will just give them milkshakes all the time. We would look at that and we would say, well, that's not love. It's the opposite of love. Love would, would teach them to enjoy vegetables and things that would, would make their, their, their health better over the long term. That would be love. And if a teenager loved to drive fast and so their parents bought them a convertible and every time they got a speeding ticket or an accident, they retained lawyers to get their child out of responsibility for those things. We would look at that and we say, that isn't love. Love would be teaching your child to be responsible and protect themselves and protect other people. And God loves us in such the same way. He says, I love you so much. I love you just the way you are. And 
love you so much. I'm not going to let you stay there. But I'm going to offer you the opportunity through my son to become the people that I've created you to be. And John says that's what love looks like. And he says when, when you understand God's agape for you, the right response is then to go and to show that same sort of love to one another. Because when you love others how God loves you, they see God. When you understand how God loves you, John says, you begin to see what love really looks like. And then when you take that and you start to love others how God loves you, they begin to see God, John says in these verses. Look at what he says again in these last couple of verses. He says, agape toy, beloved, if God so agape sent us, we also ought to agape on one another. No one has ever seen God. If we agape omen one another, God abides in us and his agape is perfected in us. So what does that mean for you and me? It means if we wanna help this world see God, then we have to go love this world and love others the way that God loves us. That means we go and we say to this world and we truly demonstrate, I love you just the way you are. I don't care where you came from or what's happened to you or what decisions that you've made in life. I have love for you. I care about you, you have value. The image of God is in you, no matter what path that you've gone down and no matter what you've done or what's happened to you, the image of God is inside of you and I recognize that and I love you. And I'm not going to say that you have to change everything about you in order for me to show you love. But I'm going to do just like God did. I'm going to sacrificially show you love that costs me something, even if you can't pay it back or even if you don't pay it back in return. Because God's son came and died for the world. For God so loved the world, John said in his gospel. And yet most of the world rejects that love. And God does it anyway. And so we might go and show love to people who might reject us. We might go show love to people and it costs us something and they will never be in a position to pay us back. But when we do that, we are loving just like God loved us. So we love people just the way they are. And we love them so much that we don't let them stay where they are. So how do we do that? We do exactly what God did. We do everything that we can to get them close to Jesus Christ. When I say I love someone that I don't let them stay where they are, what I mean is I'm gonna do everything I can to get them close to Jesus Christ because that's the only thing that can change them. It's the only thing that, can, that, that will allow them to become the person that God has designed and created them to be. It's not going to be, to be me telling them what to do. It's not going to be me um, making sure that, that all the rules are in place so that they have to do it. 
It's what it means, showing them love sacrificially and loving them in such a way that they begin to see God, just like John says. They begin to see God abiding in you and abiding in me so they might be open to what Jesus can do in their life. I don't expect anyone who hasn't met Jesus Christ to think and say and do the things that I do as a follower of Jesus. How could I possibly expect that? Understanding that Jesus has come for the propitiation of our sins, understanding the love that God has shown us in sending us his son and giving my life over to that changes everything. My entire perspective switches. And now I go and live the life that God has called me to live. And until someone else has that encounter and that experience, how could I possibly expect them to live any differently than the way that they're living now? And so I do everything I can to love them in such a way that God becomes visible and they get close to Jesus. My whole life, I had dreamed that maybe I would be a a decent basketball player. God saw it differently. And he chose me not to give things like hand-eye coordination uh, or speed or the ability to jump, all those sorts of things that are very important. Uh, when you play basketball. In, in our younger days, there's a whole group of, of guys at the church. We used to play a lot of basketball. Uh, haven't done that in a few years. But, but a few years ago, we used to play a lot of basketball together. And I was, I'm, I'm good for two things on the basketball court. I can rebound. I'll go under the hoop and I'll fight for a rebound. Thanks for nodding your head, Justin. I appreciate that. I can rebound. You want me on your team if you want rebounds. All right. And I can also get in the way of other people. I would like to say defend, but usually I'm just happen to be there and they're coming at me with the ball and I, I just am not quick enough to move out of the way. So it looks like good defense. So those are the two things that I'm good at. I'm good at rebounding and I'm good at defending. Well, we had this group of, of, of uh, guys at the church. We played a lot of basketball. And then there was this time that, that this newer guy to the church started coming around and playing with us. And his name is Tim. And Tim had moved from New York to this area. And here was the deal with Tim. Tim was the only guy that grew up in and around New York City playing basketball uh, in, in some pretty elite leagues. And then he went and he played, uh, he played all through high school. He played collegiate basketball and he coached basketball. Tim knew the game inside and out. And when Tim played the game, it just looked different. And so when I was on, I loved being on Tim's team because this is what I knew I could do. I could fight for the rebound. I could grab the rebound. And then in my head, all I had to think was just get the ball to Tim and Tim will do the rest, right? Just get the ball to Tim and he will do the rest. So I'd fight for the rebound. I'd get the rebound. I'd look for Tim. I'd pass Justin. I'd pass everybody else. And I'd find Tim and I'd throw him the ball, right? (laughs) The same way people would do to me. Justin, we get the rebound, pass up me, throw it to Tim. Because Tim knew what to do. There's so many times, like the people around us, we'd love to change them. Like, just fix it. Like we know they need to live the way that God's calling them to live. And so we can try all sorts of things that are outside of our skill set to help change that. But we got to get him to Jesus. He's the one that has has the ability to do it. He's the one that God sent 
He's the one that was able to satisfy the, the gap that was between us and God. He's the one that was able to change your life and my life if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. And he is the only one through the power of the Holy Spirit that has the ability to do that for anybody else. And so when we talk about love, especially at Christmas time, and we look at that baby in the manger, it is a reminder that God loves you so much, so much that he went first in his love and he loves you so much that he does not allow you to stay as you are, but sends his son to live on this earth and to make visible what is invisible is who God is and his character and his kingdom. And then he dies on the cross and is raised again so that you and I might have new life. And we might have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, changing us and making us into the person that God created us to be, more like his image, more like the person of Jesus Christ. And the most loving thing that you and I can do for others is to show the same sort of love God showed us before we knew him. And love them in such a way that God becomes visible and they get close to Jesus. I'm gonna invite our, our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And I'd invite you, would you just bow your head with me for a moment? You know, there's no doubt in my mind that there's someone here in the room this morning or someone that's, that's joining us online. And just as Justin had said earlier in the service, you, you've never, you've never accepted God's full love for you. You've loved the idea that God loves you just the way that you are. That makes you feel good. But you've rejected this idea. That God loves you so much that he wants to be intimately involved in every detail of your life, making you more and more like the person he's created you to be. And there's someone in this room, there's someone online that today is the day that you stop embracing that line that says, I'm in control of my own destiny. And I get to decide what's acceptable in my life. And you will recognize that that is never going to get you where you're trying to go. And you will turn that control of your heart and your mind over to God. Say, God, I am sorry for the wrath that I have caused. but I accept your love for me. Thank you for sending your son to come and pay that price that I could not pay on my own. Would you take control of my life and lead me and guide me from this day forward? 
and beginning a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it starts just by saying some simple words. And it grows and it continues as you continue to learn more about God by being a part of his community, part of his church, as you read his word and hear his voice. So if that's you, I encourage you, don't leave this room. Don't shut off your computer or your phone without taking that step today. Would this be the Christmas that you not only experience God's love, but that you experience the transformational power of God's love for you? For the rest of us, who is the person that you need to love in this way? Who's the person that you don't like the way that they're living? You're not a fan of everything that they're doing. But yet you need to show them this kind of love day in and day out so they might begin to see how God loves them. I'd encourage you right now to take a moment and pray for that person. Pray that God would give you the ability to love in that way. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much because we are your creation, because we are your children, Thank you for the experience of that love that we gained through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.